Innovate IPM community. It is your host, Rob Williams. I'm glad you're here with us today listening. What we normally talk a lot about is technology on this show. But my favorite topics will always be about people and about culture and about people and culture within projects. And after all, technology means nothing without the people who build it, operate it, and maintain it. Well, today's guest, Stephen Coffey, has a keen understanding of people and projects, and he's got an understanding of the critical importance of investing in culture in projects, the value that it provides in not just a monetary sense and a success sense, but also in the human sense at the human level. Before we jump right into it, I want to help. I want to encourage you to go to iTunes and give us a rating, give us a review if you're enjoying the show. Feel free to reach out to me at InnovateIPM.com or just email me at info at InnovateIPM.com. And uh, I'd love to talk to you about anything that's going on in your career, in your business, and how Innovate IPM might collaborate with you. Now, without further ado, let's talk with Steve. Well, thanks for uh, inviting me to talk with you today. It really means a lot. Uh, appreciate it. Thank you for so, being on. Uh, no worries. So, Stephen Coffey, been in the industry about 30 years. Um, started out in project controls when uh, project controls was really in its infancy and uh, moved up through cost engineering, estimating, uh, learned how to schedule, uh, became a project controls manager, moved up into construction management, project management, EPC management, and uh, just continued on a good trajectory through my career. Um, I would say my specialty is uh, it's going to sound a little bit broad uh, and probably a little bit dissatisfying of an answer, but the um, the details of, of project management, turnaround management, project controls are, are, are pretty consistent, but the differences are the organizational capabilities, organizational capacity, and processes and procedures. And you know, processes and procedures are just one leg of the stool. I would say my real specialty is is how do we optimize our organizational capabilities and how do we optimize our organizational capacity in order to properly and thoroughly implement our processes and procedures. So hopefully that makes sense as an answer. Um, yeah, I think so. But, but I would say, in a nutshell, if it was like too uh, too long, did not read, it would just say good. people. And, you know, you, it's, it's funny that you said that about it, your specialty being kind of broad. It definitely was not uh, a dissatisfactory answer. And it's actually a conversation that I've had on the show in the past. Uh, in fact, I, I don't remember what episode it was, but I was having a conversation with uh, a fellow named Josh Medica. And we got into, you know, generalist being a specialist or specializing in being a generalist. Yeah. And that, that ended up being a pretty interesting conversation. And I think you just, I think you just tied right into that. So that's nice. Yeah. I would say that, um, one of the things, uh, as you, as you move through the industry is utilizing those three legs of the stool, you know, the people, their, their capabilities, the capacity and the process procedures and taking that information and predicting accurate results. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, 
and being able to um, ascertain what, what what likely outcomes are, whether it's you know project forecasting, uh, cost forecasting, schedule forecasting, business forecasting, what have you. Um, that that's really where the the generalist specialist um, performs the best is, is mm-hmm. to be able to uh, uh, take a little bit of information and, and project uh, likely outcomes. Yep. Very good. So the reason we, we connected on LinkedIn some time ago, um, and I've been watching you a little bit, not to be stalkerish, but uh, you put some good content out and I've been paying attention to uh, to some of the things that you've said, but you, you actually put a post out about a month ago, uh, which would be which would be May. I think it was in May. Could have been in April. And it was such a good post. I, I kind of clicked and said, okay, I got to get this guy on the podcast. He's, he's definitely speaking my language. And I think he would provide value to the Innovate IPM community. Would you mind if I just read that, that post? Not at all. Okay, great. And so I'm just reading it verbatim. None of the, none of the comments that were below it. And this is, this, it goes just like this. It goes, industry performance is still typical to 15 to 20 years ago. Most events fail to meet three quarters of their objectives, and many are considered train wrecks. The latest heavily marketed savior is digitalization or industry 4.0. Not posting to debate the value of the movement. I'm all for it. But my view is that while technology is a value added component, it is not the silver bullet. Events fail because of culture. Most companies don't invest in culture because it's hard. It's not sexy and it can't be monetized for personal gain. But if you want systemic, sustainable success in process, in a process, you must invest in a culture that promotes meeting commitments, enables realism in defining commitments, truly values upfront planning, scoping, and preparation, abhors reactive behavior in crisis mode, behaves consistently to demonstrate high value for people, has widespread passion to eliminate the causes of failure, avoids and challenges finger pointing, leadership participates in accountability, leadership has patience and perseverance to see it through, leadership actively listens and asks questions respectfully, lack of arrogance throughout the organization, and finally, recognize and reward behavior consistent with desired culture. I love this post so much that you don't even know. I've got it framed and hanging on my wall. I really don't, but, but I, might, I might do that after this show. I'll send you an autographed picture. You can hang it. You can hang it next to it. Thank you, thank you. And I hope I read it. I hope I read it to your satisfaction. Yeah, um, well. So, so the the thing that that I see over and over in this post that that drew my attention was culture. That's really the key thing that drew me in, and and it started right. Right here, I guess in the third sentence or so, it said events fail because of culture. Let's talk about that for a minute. Okay, so uh, kind of in the preamble, I talked about the three-legged stool, right? The mm-hmm. capacity, capability, and procedures. Well, the top of the stool is what you sit on, right? That's culture. So there, there's four parts to the stool, and the, the platform that you rest on is, is culture that ties it all together. Um you know, culture is, is something that people talk about. Um, you know, we try to manufacture culture through buzzwords and slogans and, and printed materials and, and training and all that. But 
you know, culture is kind of like art. You know it, you know what you like, and you know it when you see it. But it's hard to describe, and 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 it's hard to, to put out there exactly what it is in a tangible way. So, um, and a lot of times we can recognize where cultures don't work, and and we don't under, really understand why cultures do work. So. Uh, we, we could have, we could have a conversation for three days about that subject and probably never even scratch the surface. But yes, I would say that, you know, in general, as an industry, uh, we haven't learned our lessons, um, over time. And, uh, we, we learn our lessons around safety performance when there's a negative impact, uh, and, and, uh, people get hurt and, and we take that very seriously as an industry and the changes over the last 20, 30 years have been dramatic. But from a culture standpoint, uh, there, there's really not a lot of reward for it. Um, and that's why I had that sentence in there around, um, we don't invest in culture because it's, it's hard and it's not sexy and it can't be monetized for our personal gain. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you have to look at people's motivation for, for culture. And if it can't be monetized, then, then in a lot of cases, there's no interest in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the successful companies have found that successful cultures are monetized and they take the long view. So the hundred year business plan, you know, approach. Now, when you look at, I'm not going to name names, but when you look at the companies that are, you know, the blue chip stocks and have been around forever, you know, they have an embedded ingrained culture that they raise people in. They, uh, you know, they take the eggs uh, out of high school or out of college, they incubate them and, and they hire people to retire people. And they work a lot to embed a certain culture in, mm-hmm. into those into those folks. If they worked in that culture for twenty years, there's no way that they can they could move over to another organization and and work in that culture because that's not what they were raised in. It's it's a square peg in a round hole. So in a roundabout way, I'm trying to kind of come back to your original question: is is um, culture uh, is easy to recognize when there's the absence of it. And uh, in my experience, I've been in a lot of cultures. Uh, you know, if you look at my LinkedIn profile, I've, I've worked in a lot of a lot of companies, uh, a lot of geo uh, geographical locations. So that, that brings up a lot of different um, cultures I've had to work in and, and navigate through and be successful uh, in. And um, what I found is that the successful cultures really go down to that um, to that bullet point around lack of arrogance. So, in other words, there's an inquisitive mindset, there's a learning mindset, there's a seeking to understand mindset, and unfortunately, in our industry, we're so set in our ways that that's that's a hard um, thing to overcome because mm-hmm. we think we know things, we think we know how to do things. Uh, if it wasn't invented here, it's not any good. And that's why we still have the same results that we were experiencing 15 to 20 years ago. And I said 15 to 20, I probably could have said 30 to 40. Yes. So, um, um, you know, the, the, the problems that we had back then are the same problems we have now. Um, that's, that's very interesting. And, and, you know, I think I've, I've been in a lot of different organizations. I, I obviously, you know, I've been in the business for longer than maybe my age, my, my face makes it look, but I ain't got enough gray hairs yet. I probably should. All my peers do. Um, well, they sell an over-counter remedy called Just for Men. That'll Just for Men, that. yeah. yeah <laughs> but the kind of cultures that I've been in, and I've seen some, you know, I've seen some 
people that were driven strictly by money in say mid-sized engineering firms. I'm not going to name anybody, but when the leadership is just driven by money, we saw turnover rates of like a year. Maybe we had a year where, where we'd get yeah. a new hire and it'd be gone in 12 months or, or even less sometimes. Sometimes they, they quit within two or three months um, because the culture wasn't supportive of them. It didn't treat them like human beings. It treated them like tools in a toolbox. Yeah. You know, and, and this is kind of one of the things that's left scars on me, so to speak. And, and that I try to, I try to find people who are, are better than that, you know? Um, so yeah, this is, this is my, my contribution to your, to your response there. And, and I think that organizationally speaking, you know, one of the hardest things I think people have are, are, what you've got in the second bullet right here, which is enabling realism and defining commitments. And, and if we go back to that example of that mid-sized engineering firm, and it's not just them, it's a whole bunch of them. They, they feel like they can't be realistic about their commitments because if they were realistic about their commitments, they wouldn't get the work. Yeah. If they were honest about it, they wouldn't get to work. And, and one of the things that I talk about a lot on the show is is owner optimism. So on the owner side of things, everybody thinks it can be done cheaper, faster, better. And on the contractor side, they they doing everything they can to win the work against their competition. And so it sets in motion this sort of domino effect where where reality sort of gets thrown out the door until it starts hitting you with change orders or it starts hitting you with engineering bust in the field or it starts hitting you with uh, high high turnover in personnel because they can't take the pressure anymore. You're working them around the clock trying to meet, make the ends meet. And, uh, you know, let, let me ask you this in relationship to that that very statement, enabling realism and defining commitments. How do you think we can start building the culture to, to accomplish that? Yeah. I mean, that, what you just said, there's a lot to unpack there, man. Uh, yeah. Sorry about that. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's good stuff. Um, you know, we may need to have a, a, a serial podcast, but uh, I'm all for it. Yeah. The, um, so you, you hit on a great a great topic. So if you break it down between the owner's perspective and the, and the contractor uh, supplier's perspective. So from an owner's perspective, you know, I talked about those eggs that they take out of college and they incubate them and they grow them up in the culture. So, you know, you've you got these guys that aren't, and I'm talking about management personnel, they don't sit in the seat for more than two to three years. Mm-hmm. So what they're looking for is they're, they're looking for a couple things. One is don't mess it up. Yeah. Uh, you know, so don't take the organization backwards. We're not looking for you to come in with some big, hairy, audacious goals, you know, BHAGs and, and transform the industry and, and take us from, you know, the speed of sound to light speed. Uh, what we're looking for is, is incremental improvement. So what they're trying to do is not screw up their career, uh, keep their career advancing, make some changes, but just, uh, uh, and move the needle a little bit, but, but, but nothing too dramatic. And, and they're going to be very risk averse. And they're also raised in a culture, uh, that promotes that. So, mm-hmm. um, and, and, and there's no serial number one. Um, you know, we're, we're not going to be the experimenters. We're not going to be the, you know, the first people out the box. We want things that are tried, true, and proven before we're going to commit to it because I'm not going to jeopardize 
my career trajectory for, for a serial number one thing, even if my gut and my beliefs and, and my, my data and my, uh, tells me this is what we need to do. So you, you got to fight against that culture from the, mm-hmm. the contractor, supplier, vendor standpoint, you hit the nail on the head is I'm in, I'm in the business of making money and the business of making money uh, has to be done with integrity, uh, with compassion and with ethics. Uh, so we're not going to lie to our clients, but, but, you know, at the end of the day, you know what that engineering firm is, is supposed to do? They're supposed to give the client exactly what they asked for. Nothing yes. more, nothing less. That's it. Yes. And, um, um, and so it, it sets itself up to be a very dissatisfying relationship when you have those two in combination. Um, the, the, what I've seen is, um, the successful conversations and the successful relationships are, I'm bringing this to your attention. I think you need to be aware of it. If we go down this path, these are, these are the possible outcomes. These are the possible results that we may experience. It's your decision. My job is to give you information, uh, uh, in order to make an informed, uh, uh, decision. And I want you to acknowledge that I'm giving you this information. I'm not saying you got to say it this way, or, but the context is the same. Mm-hmm. Those are healthy conversations. And, it, and if and if the owner organization decides to go against your recommendation, you, you, you've done your due diligence and you've performed, you know, your, your um, uh, gave them the information they needed. Right. Um, you, you didn't create, you, you didn't allow a vacuum to exist. Right. I think that's about all, all that you can do from a, from a vendor and supplier and contractor standpoint. And then, um, at the end of the day, we're not talking about have people having to bend their ethics or morality or integrity. I mean, that's, that's, that's not what, what we're talking about. So it's just of course not, yeah. good, good business practices. Mm. From the owner standpoint, you know, that, that culture is going to be difficult to change. And I, I think we're going to, you know, we're going to see a consolidation in the industry. Um, and, um, uh, so in, in the merchant, uh, chemical industry, refining industry, the, the smaller companies, the ability to impact a culture is, is easier because, you know, it's not a barge that already has momentum or, you know, a rolling rock that you can't change and turn. They're a little bit more nimble and flexible. Um, and you also have a lot of turnover in those types of work, those smaller organizations uh, mm-hmm. because people are looking for the next biggest better thing. It is a little bit easier to impact the culture there, but you're still only impacting at your level down. Those organizations tend to be driven by strong personalities. Maybe it's a single owner, yeah. uh, sole proprietorship. Maybe it's um, even if it's publicly traded, it, it, it could be a, a company that has an ingrained culture because it was built from the ground up by certain you know person or, or organization and you know a lot of companies were built that way right and those cultures are going to follow the leadership of the of, of their established um, uh, ownership uh, and and that's going to be hard to fight so it's an unsatisfying answer because I, I don't know if there's there is no silver bullet there is no wavy magic wand you just got to go through it the best you can. And go back to that, that first thing I said is, is give the information, um, you know, whatever we're talking about, whether it's, um, you're asking me to be unproductive, Mr. Owner. Uh, I can do it more efficiently. I can do it more effectively this way. If you invest 
if you spend some money, I can save you some money. And at the end of the day, if they choose not to do that, you, you've gone through your due diligence, you've given them the information, they made their decision. Don't go back and say, I told you so. <laughs> but, right. uh, but ha- have that follow up conversation of, yeah, can we help you in the future avoid what we just went through by following my recommendations? And build that relationship over time with the clients you want to work with and with the clients that go back to what I said earlier, kind of trying to close the circle here a little bit, that have a lack of arrogance, that um, have a seeking to understand uh, uh, mentality, a wanting to learn mentality and work for those people. You, you know, you don't have to, yeah. you don't have to work for everybody. Just work for right. the people you like and then go where your clients want you to go. Um, because that, that'll grow you. One of the things that, uh, you know, is kind of the antithesis of, of, well, not the antithesis, but to, to draw on a point that maybe would be a good example of things operating correctly. You make the statement here of horrors, reactive behavior and crisis mode. Uh, let, let me ask you this and, and whatever, whatever the answer is, is fine. But, but have you been involved with an organization that does abhor reactive behavior and crisis mode? And, and if so, what does that look like? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, there, there's spectrums, right? There's um, there's the people that um, really um, are rewarded and incentivized for being firefighters. Uh, you know, they create their own emergency and then go out and solve it, and then they're the hero. And then at the other end of the spectrum are the uh, the people that are you know uh, analysis by paralysis can't can't make any decisions, management by committee. And there are companies that are in between. Um, I would say that the current culture that I'm working in now is um, uh, the culture I'm working in now is not reactive at all. It's very uh, methodical, very painstaking, uh, very well thought out decision making processes, um, over communicates. Um, sometimes that, that can be uh, painful uh, to have the same conversation four or five times. But, uh, you know, it's people that are coming from the standpoint of, I really didn't get it the first time. Can you do it? Can you explain it to me again? Yeah, which is totally a, valid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a desire to be thorough and there's a desire to be extremely professional. Um, and so I would say, yeah, it does exist because I'm, I'm working in it now. What, nice. it, what it took is for me to adjust my paradigm because I'm, I'm used to uh, moving at the speed of light and, you know, just um, uh, pointing and shooting, telling people what to do, giving them the processes and tools uh, with them. Uh, the, the organizational capability side is, is, you know, spend a lot of time with people and coaching them on a one-on-one basis. But when, when you have an organization that wants to improve and recognizes that we don't know what we don't know and um, wants to learn and grow and um, um, that's that's the that's the culture that that I'm working in now and and it's it's a, it's a welcome uh, breath of fresh air you know to, yeah. to be able to do that on the downside things move slower uh, more slowly um, decision making involves more people sure. I'm not saying it's management by committee but it's uh, it, it definitely slows things down there's 
things, uh, uh, best practices that, that we may be ingrained in that, that their culture I'm working in now isn't ingrained in. So I can't assume that there's a basis, a common basis of understanding. So I have to recognize that and change my approach to, to how I deal with that. Um, I think, you know, maybe taking your question in a little bit different way is if you're not willing to adjust your own paradigm to be able to s- still try to move the needle forward and bring value, um, you're always going to be frustrated. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, if I'll kind of leave it at that. With all of this, and this is some really heavy stuff we're talking about here when it comes to organizations and culture and, you know, the, the, the way that all this stuff fits together to create a, an effective project environment. Um, we, we know that things are changing rapidly in the industry, all industries. Um, what, what are the kind of changes that we need to make as professionals maybe a small business people to really face those changes as they come up here in the future. I guess I would, I would say a couple of things is, um, you know, we're seeing changes in the industry in a lot of different ways. Um, you know, we've been, we've been on a downward cycle of craft, um, competency for two to three decades. Sure. Um, you know, uh, coming out of Katrina or going into Katrina, you know, wages for the craft were pretty low. Uh, uh, the, the craft capabilities and craft availability was very low. Uh, Post Katrina brought an influx of, of um, probably the wrong term, but let's say migrant workers or, or um, you know, a working, uh, um, a, a pool of workers that ne- weren't necessarily available to the industry prior to Katrina, but okay. post Katrina, you know, we're, we're seeing a lot of, you know, uh, Spanish speaking crafts, uh, come into the market. And so that mm-hmm. increased the, the available labor pool to the industry. That was a major change. We've also seen a, a dramatic increase in the labor uh, rates, uh, for the craft, uh, since, you know, 2004 to you know, the, the last 16 years. So I think that, that is keeping people in the industry and maybe attracting some folks in the industry, but not your typical, uh, you know, blue collar folks that we had 20 or 30 years ago. Yeah. So I, I think the industry has reacted well to that and has changed well to that, you know, and, and we could have a whole nother discussion on open shop versus uh, trade unions and things like that. But, um, you know, we, we, we somehow have kept our finger in the dike and, and are still getting work done. I think what we've invested in too is, is, is ways to improve our ability to be productive. Um, and, uh, that's where I think our process and procedures on project planning, project controls. So, you know, what we focus on in the industry is trying to bring, uh, more focus around our, our tools and the use of data in order to maximize the available productive time that, that we have to apply our craft. So, and, and I'm talking about the construction, you know, uh, part of part of the industry the so you know in, in a given shift there's only so many hours uh, uh, that a craft is uh, available to work so whatever we can do to maximize uh, their ability to get to the job site to uh, strike an arc turn a wrench whatever it is you're going to do and have the materials the, the equipment um, the permit the equipment's ready for them to work on and they know what they need to do 
if we can maximize that ability that when they start, all those things are in place, then we're maximizing productivity. If you maximize your available productivity, then you can uh, maximize your ability to meet your schedule and your cost commitments. So I, I think that's where we're seeing the industry change is, is how do we ascertain that and then how do we break down those barriers? Uh, we're trying to take lagging indicators and turn them into leading indicators. Mm-hmm. Um, and through the digitization, that's where you know, we're, 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 we're able to get more information in real time in order to make an impact yeah. uh, to maximize that, that craft productivity. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So that, that, that's where I kind of see the big changes now. Data for data's sake, that's tough. Um, we sure. should be become inundated with data. So um, I, I think we have to keep it simple, stupid uh, me, uh, methodology. Absolutely. Um, and then we have to bring all parts of the organization into the fold to recognize the need for data. So operations, uh, project management, um, uh, site facility services, logistics, all of those aspects have to be integrated into the data management, data sharing plan because they all contribute to the ability to have that craft on their job at the right time, at the right uh, right place, with the right tools, the right knowledge, and let them go to work. Because I, I really believe that when a person comes to a job, they want to work. And it's our job to make them as productive as possible. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I just had that conversation with a, uh, a project manager yesterday. and I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, it was yesterday. And uh, uh, we were talking about how some of the younger project managers see maybe some craftsmen standing around complaining about it and then probably not even realizing it's their fault because they didn't <laughs> they didn't sign that change order. Yeah, there was some engineering bus they got overlooked in the, in the model really, review. So we said, yeah, yeah th- these guys just want to work. They don't like they don't like standing around. They get satisfaction from completing jobs and that's exactly. being taken away from them. So it's aggravating for the craftsmen themselves. Yeah. Well they're not the enemy. Absolutely and I, and not. Too often we treat them like they're the enemy. Sure. Yeah. Awesome, man. This has been really good stuff. Um, let me ask you, is is there any, I, I, you sound like a well-read guy. I know I caught at least one Jim Collins reference in there somewhere. <laughs> so is there any books or anything like that you would recommend to the listeners who may want to dig deeper into culture, you know, organizational culture or anything else? Really glad you, you said that because I'm reaching over and I'm picking up a book uh, nice. written by James Kerr. It's called Legacy. And it's a book uh, about the, the uh, All Blacks rugby team. Um, okay. That, um, and what it, what it explores is, um, you know, how are they able to develop and sustain a winning culture over many, many years? And I'm not a rugby fan. I don't follow rugby, but I think I've heard of the All Blacks and I know that they won multiple World Cups. And, mm-hmm. you know, when South Africa won the, uh, uh, the World Cup, it was, a, it was a big deal that they, you know, they were able to beat this team. And so if you want to, you know, talk about culture and how to establish a winning culture and be a leader, it's a great, it's a great book. It's an easy read. It's, uh, in, in paperback form. It's about 200 pages. Uh, so it's, it's not extensive, great for an air, uh, for airplane flights and things like that. But every team I've ever assembled in the last probably three years, I've bought 
multiple copies of this. So, you know, if you go on Amazon and look it up, I'm probably account for a couple hundred of the purchases. Uh, <laughs> great book. Great book. Good. Awesome, man. Well, thank you for sharing that. Thanks for coming on and, and we'll make sure and, and put anything you want in the show notes and link to your LinkedIn and, and all that stuff too. So thank you, Steven. Thanks for inviting me. I, I, I hope uh, I'll bring some value to you listeners.